0: CHAPTER FOUR THE SUFFERING SELF Suppose Pikus, a dog tied upon a leash, was bound to a strong post or pillar. It would just keep on running and revolving around that same post or pillar. So, too, the uninstructed worldling regards form as self, feeling as self perception as self, determinations as self, consciousness as self. He just keeps running and revolving around form, feeling, perception, determinations around consciousness. As he keeps on running and revolving around them, he is not freed from form, feeling, perception, determinations, not Freed from consciousness. He is not freed from birth, aging, and death. Not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Not freed from suffering, I say. Samyutta Nikaya 22.99 I once visited the Art Institute of Chicago and, while walking its halls, had a protracted and deeply troubling experience. As with any museum of such a high caliber, the Institute is filled with art pieces from around the world that are often hundreds if not thousands of years old. For whatever reason, during this particular visit, the insight struck me that what I was walking through was not simply a museum of pretty pictures, but a monument built out of tiny fragments of humanity left behind by a majority of very dead individuals. Every work of art sang a song that could only briefly reference an entire lifetime that was once lived by a very real person. Everywhere I turned, there was another life that had once been lived with equal complexity and texture as my own. One Renaissance painting depicted Roman chariot races, lives within lives within lives. I felt pulled into those lives by each work, yearning to know, to see, to understand who these people were, how they were able to produce such beauty, and what motivated them to do so. But honestly, to me, their artistic capacities were almost irrelevant compared to the sheer magnitude of Human emotion and sensitivity that their artwork represented. Behind each work, there was such a quantity of time, an entire world of culture and events and relationships, successes and failures, and joys and sorrows. Each life was an island unto itself, a world I would not and could not ever truly know. I wanted to be them, all of them. But the paintings were not portals to another world. I would only smack my head into oil and canvas and be escorted out. A melancholic wistfulness turned into a burning mass of spiritual frustration welling up inside me. I tried to express what happened to me to others, but there were no people readily available in my life at that time who seemed to really understand. I hope, perhaps, that the kind of person who will have made it this far into a book like this will be able to sympathize with my experience. I hope also that this book has been Effective in pulling you into the Buddhist worldview, such that you will have already realized why I am sharing this anecdote. This yearning for the erasure of human boundaries and the unification of the spirit with the whole lies at the heart of mysticism and all the most common forms of spirituality everywhere. It is also, unfortunately, the root cause of suffering. This experience that I described was the most evocative example I could draw on from my own life to introduce a relatively technical concept from the Buddha's discourses, Pavva Tangha, or craving for becoming. Tangha, craving, is classically divided up into three different types, sensual craving, craving for becoming, and craving for annihilation. This division is really only for the purpose of analysis. Just as consciousness cannot truly be recognized apart from the objects that we are conscious of, these three types of becoming cannot truly be split apart in any other way than a purely conceptual one. There is that which you want to be, that which you are pushing away from, and the enticement of sensuality that pulls you from one to another. There can never be one kind of craving without the other two. One aspect of our craving might at times be accentuated over the other two, but the whole system of becoming and sensuality always requires all three. I have already indirectly made use of this becoming concept multiple times, for becoming is an absolutely central concept in Buddhist doctrine and component in the engine of gratification. Notice, if you will, that any time you crave for something, there is always a pull to be in an embodied world where our craving can be properly satisfied. There is a pressure on our bodies as if by gravity to shift and morph ourselves into a new universe where we reside comfortably in the center of a psychic galaxy where the objects of our craving orbit close by, ready to hand. Even if the craving is dominated by a pure will to be embodied in some different abstract identity of triumph, satisfaction, or admiration, our imaginings will still supply all the accoutrements of emotional gratification that come along with it, like a many-armed Hindu god grasping the rod, parasol, dagger, or censer that symbolically represents the domain of our grandeur. Or, if our craving for annihilation is at the fore, The distasteful world we currently inhabit will be vividly imagined imploding behind us in our escape to a new and more suitable world, never to bother us again. These are perhaps some relatively dramatic examples to describe a simple hankering for some ice cream, but if you care to recognize it, you may be surprised by how excessively dramatic our imaginings of even simple pleasures can be. Ignoring the romanticism of our craving is exactly how we keep engaging in it, because otherwise we would inevitably get a bit embarrassed by how over-the-top it all is, or at least have to shamelessly affirm the tackiness of our longings. This dyad of becoming fueled by the gravity of sensuality mirrors another fundamental component of craving, the bifurcation of self and world. For wherever the emotional mass and energy of becoming consolidates itself, there is precisely where you will find the sense of self, right? At the center of it all, the Buddha gave a thorough treatment of all the problems that come attendant with the sense of self, emphasizing the topic as one of the most important in his entire teaching. In my preparatory philosophical research, it was in this domain of phenomenological analysis that both the tremendous insightfulness, but also the limitations of Western philosophical treatments of the topic made themselves plain. With the Buddha, the existentialists also recognized the central role the sense of self has to play in the unenlightened experience of the world, with Sartre recognizing the necessity of our above bifurcation. Without the world, there is no selfness, no person. Without selfness, without person, there is no world. Strikingly Buddhist insights into the nature of the self indeed go all the way back to the very beginning of phenomenology as a field of inquiry. As Heidegger summarizes Scheller's thoughts on the subject, the person is no thing-like and substantial being. This illusoriness of the self thus described precisely mirrors the Buddhist teaching of anatta, or non-self. In the teaching traditionally regarded to be the second discourse the Buddha ever gave, the Anattalakkhana Sutta, the Buddha encouraged his first disciples to dwell contemplating each of the five aggregates as unownable and uncontrollable. He reasons with them that we cannot and will never be able to dictate the unfolding of our experience saying, let form be like this, or let perception not be like this. And thus, none of the various aspects of our experience can be ourselves or be authentically appropriated or owned by us in any way. Seeing this, a learned, noble disciple grows disillusioned with form, affective feeling, perception, determinations, and consciousness. Being disillusioned, desire fades away. When desire fades away, they're freed. Thus, phenomenology, through its approach to reality based on direct discernment first and foremost, rediscovered basic tenets of the Dhamma even in its very infancy as a branch of philosophy. For on the very same page as the above quote summarizing Scheller, Heidegger further recognizes the possibility for applying the phenomenological method to something as basic as intentional action, recognizing that this is tantamount to depersonalization. These quotes and the many others I have interspersed throughout the pages of this book are why existential phenomenology leapt up to a Westerner like myself as the Tama's natural hermeneutic but I have also previously referred to the stumbling blocks of the philosophers, and this right here is precisely where they all invariably fell. This discomfort around depersonalization and the artificiality of the self is the difference between the existentialists and the Buddha. The assumption and resulting inadvertent glorification of the cogito, is the philosopher's original sin. A sin that kept them bound to lives that would historically amount to little more than the production of weighty and abstruse, though intellectually significant, tomes. Staring into the abyss, the philosophers blinked. The Buddha did not. Consciousness doesn't come stamped with your name on it. And for that matter, it doesn't come stamped with God's name on it either. But despite the perpetual possibility for the recognition of the ephemerality of the self, we continue to cling to that self as if our very life depended on it. Indeed, in a way, it does. The gravity of becoming that fashions our world is also the material that we fashion our sense of self out of. Yet, the self can never be regarded directly. It is only ever the dark matter that we assume lies at the center of a massive well of craving. Search for it and you will not find there will always only be the cheshire cat of thrownness smiling back at you taunting you in your efforts to find that core of safety stability and eternal life not seeing the danger in such an assumption as the core self we take it at face value and always agree that the Pirsipi refers to a being not subject to the laws of the appearance, but we still maintain this transphenomenal being is the being of the subject. This danger is the eternally futile yearning of Dukkha to pin itself down and finally have itself as Sartre Evocatively describes at length. If I must suffer, I should prefer that my suffering would seize me and flow over me like a storm, but instead I must raise it into existence in my free spontaneity. I should like simultaneously to be it and to conquer it, but this enormous, opaque suffering which should transport me out of myself, continues instead to touch me lightly with its wing, and I cannot grasp it. I find only myself, myself who moans, myself who wails, myself who, in order to realize this suffering which I am, must play without respite the drama of suffering. I wring my hands, I cry, in order that being in itself, their sounds, their gestures may run through the world, ridden by the suffering in itself, which I cannot be. Each groan, each facial expression of the man who suffers aims at sculpturing a statue in itself of suffering. But this statue will never exist, save through others and for others. My suffering suffers from being what it is not and from not being what it is. At the point of being made one with itself, it escapes, separated from itself by nothing. By that nothingness, of which it is itself the foundation. This is the suffering self. The assumption of the independent, unconditioned self at the center of the universe, though so faulty and ephemeral, is also the most fundamental metaphysical construction there is, serving as the basis of for all others. Through this assumption, what is otherwise simply a field of flowing, unownable intentions, contextualized attention, and already given thusness, is warped into a throbbing flux of agitation. The self introduces us to the weight of gravity, we act as the gravitational emissary of the self, frantically rushing out to pull the world into our orbit, running back and forth to grab new fuel for the fire of craving before tossing it back into an insatiable black hole, never to be seen again. This quivering, rushing, pulling nonsense is the turning. Of the wheel samsara the yearning for a completeness that is itself the condition for incompletion the back and forth churning between one for all and all for one the self therefore represents an ideal distance within the imminence of the subject in relation to himself a way of not being his own coincidence of escaping identity while positing it as a unity, in short, of being in a perpetually unstable equilibrium between identity as absolute cohesion without a trace of diversity, and unity as a synthesis of multiplicity. Despite being the source of so much instability and effort, this self-assumption is, for most of us, simply the most natural thing in the world, hardly appearing to be such a problem as the Puta and Sartre made it out to be. Thus, the comforting familiarity and banality of the self-world dynamic is one of the greatest obstacles towards taking on the urgent attitude of striving that the Buddha encouraged in his disciples. Gladly, let only skin, sinews, and bones remain. Let the flesh and blood waste away in my body. I will not stop trying until I have achieved what is possible by human strength, energy, and vigor. For those of us who live in a comfortable self, in a comfortable world, such an exhortation would seem a bit extreme. But in such moments, we may recall that suffering, aging, illness, and death are also pretty extreme. Sanguega is always lurking like a comet periodically disrupting the harmonious and undisturbed movement of our solar system of self. Though rare and generally unconsidered, it is also possible for solar eclipses to occur. Our sense of self can drastically diminish or even apparently evaporate for certain periods of time. I imagine the most common and dramatic manner by which this occurs is through the use of a large enough quantity of psychedelic drugs. The ensuing emotional reorganization that must occur when the center of our world evaporates in front of our very eyes is no doubt the primary reason why such experiences often have a profound and lasting impact on people's lives. As mentioned earlier, intensive concentration exercises can also bring upon the same effect, often with equal amounts of spectacular mystic imagery for those with the proper disposition. This chapter will be relatively short, so we might as well take an aside here to explicitly address this issue of psychedelics, visionary experiences, and mysticism in general, I believe it is important to do so because I have found that most Buddhist teachers who are living committed to celibacy and asceticism did not themselves partake in using psychedelics earlier in life and can thus only make cautious recommendations against their use without being able to speak to the substance's limitations and dangers from personal experience. Like ex-nihilists, there are not a great number of ex-psychonauts or ex-drug addicts amongst the most senior members of the Sangha, the community of Buddhist monastics. So I feel obligated to contribute my expertise. As I stated in Chapter 3, psychedelic and or mystical experiences do not maintain any essential relationship with awakening as it was expounded by the Buddha. This is for very specific technical reasons as we have described. Awakening has everything to do with our attitude towards experience and composure in the face of the vagaries of samsara and is, therefore, not itself a positive experience as such. It is far more like a mood than a specific emotional experience, a mood that is cultivated and maintained over long periods of time to the expense of other possible moods until other moods and. Indeed, any possible mood at all has become impossible. But everybody knows that there are certain experiences that encourage certain kinds of moods. And with this recognition, we can begin to understand what the Buddha was talking about when he described his teaching as the kind of action that puts an end to action. Unless you are already fully enlightened and do so by mistake, if you take 500 micrograms of LSD, your mood is going to change. The flood of images and emotions combined with the almost inevitable dissolution of the sense of self under such a large dose will literally rock your world to the core. Whatever attitude you previously held about reality will almost certainly need to change. For the average person, such a drastically alien experience cannot but have equally drastic emotional ramifications. Some of the long term effects on a person's attitude towards life as a result of a psychedelic trip can be and often are quite positive in the conventional sense, but this is a kind of positive attitude shift that is ultimately ignorant of itself. The principle of what makes a good attitude good and a bad attitude bad is invariably still obscured. Whatever wisdom is thus gained will be only temporary not penetrating into the nature of goodness, as we have previously described and encouraged. This kind of wisdom is equivalent to all the other kinds of mundane wisdom that can be gained over a lifetime of experiences and is just as resistant to further intentional development and cultivation. The same goes for other visionary experiences that are produced through any manner of non-chemical means. Because the contextual shifts that occur via mysticism are most often not gained through intentional cultivation but via grace to make use of the Christian conception, they cannot themselves result in lasting wisdom or Penetration into right view. Some aspects of the shift may be relatively long lasting, but those shifts that were most impactful in the moment, like the erasure of the sense of self, are often the same ones that have very limited duration before our long term habits of thought and behavior take back the reins. Because they are so connected with deeply uplifting and pleasurable feelings, mystical experiences can easily be conceived as the ultimate goal of the spiritual life, serving as a perennial trap for the mystically inclined. Like so many other things, even if you technically get the experience you're looking for by taking some mushrooms and communing with nature you will not truly be gaining anything worth having in the ultimate sense. I cannot deny that the shock of such a thing could lead to the kinds of questions that demand to be answered, beginning a journey that could end up in a truly valuable place, but there are significant undeniable dangers regarding such a beginning. The Buddha strongly discouraged the use of any substances that can lead to heedlessness. And I emphatically echo this sentiment from personal experience. True wisdom requires diligence and effort. There is no elevator to nirvana. So, beware. Beyond the danger of ecstatic heedlessness and the perpetual risk of the dreaded bad trip, it must be noted that these experiences actually never involve the total eradication of the sense of self. They only twist it into something so different as to be unrecognizable. Theistic mystics may be lifted out of themselves and merged with the divine, but in an attitude of ecstatic rapture, there is still maintained a very subtle sense of self, the same pulsing sensuality that energizes all the other more mundane selves that we normally inhabit. Insofar as someone is having a very big, highly emotionally impactful experience, there is still some level of selfing involved. Just like in chapter 1, where we examined the subtle levels of stress still remaining in heaven. In order for an experience to be moving, you must retain the capacity to be moved. You must imagine that there is an unexplored realm of human experience out there to move into, but this is a fallacy that maintains a fundamental ignorance of the nature of Dasein and is precisely the capacity that craving leverages to fabricate a problem for the imagined self, posited to be magically solvable through some hypothetical external object, no matter how abstract spiritual or emotionally intense the object of your mystical contemplation is, insofar as you posit it to be a solution to your problems, you are, in reality, simply perpetuating the cycle of dissatisfaction. The attempt to grasp onto something out there that will provide the solution to the discomfort you feel in here is precisely the extent to which out there even exists. Out there only ever exists as a metaphysical assumption motivated by and directly supportive of craving. If that statement and our previous exposition of a radically phenomenological metaphysics discomforts you, if you would accuse the tama of solipsism as if that is some kind of argument or insult, very well. If this is solipsism, it's the kind of solipsism that, in and through, the groundlessness of transcendence and all the ungraspable fullness of imminence collapses in on itself and obliterates the divide between in here and out there, finding it impossible to discern satisfactory grounds for disambiguating the difference. Such a divide has always been strictly nonsensical. It's all just here, unless you conceive the situation to be otherwise in a fashion that can itself only ever just be here. The escape out of naive solipsism into an authentic understanding of Dasein can be undertaken in precisely the way that Heidegger already thoroughly described for us all. However, such an escape is practically and existentially incomplete until we have recognized the link between sensuality and the self. Through gratifying in sensuality, we reinforce our habit of conceiving our problems to be out there, and in that vacuum of emotional space caused by the external lack, the self instantly emerges in here ready to be fed. In this way, out there and in here are actually the exact same misconception, the magnetic dipole of the self-world. It is this habit of sensuality and its fuel, our fundamentally ignorant, misconceiving with respect to the nature of reality, that constitutes the difference between craving and intentionality mentioned in previous chapters. Craving always entails a self at the center of a world. Intentionality does not have to. It is possible to regard the functions of intentionality in a purely depersonalized way In the way that was a bit unnerving to Heidegger. Doing so requires that a context of asceticism and composure that constrains the expansive tendency of the self world to be upheld and intensified, while simultaneously working to undermine the sensual view of the world through purposefully and continually contemplating that universal ontological equivalence of all phenomena, their perpetual, ubiquitous, unownable throneness, Even an aspect of experience so frequently sucked into the field of the self-world as volition itself can and should be recognized in its throneness, for where does volition even come from? Where does the capacity for volition come from? Why did it come about? And how does it even function? You can give all the physicalist, neuroscientific justifications you want, but those thoughts are only ever something you're volitionally engaged in. Volition precedes its own explanation. And we can only ever retroactively justify our experience as having been set into motion by a volitional act via the capacity for memory, which is yet another positively magical thing that obtains no satisfactory explanation. All explanations of such phenomena can only assume themselves to be satisfactory out of ignorance regarding the explanation's ontological dependence upon precisely that which it seeks to explain, there will never be an adequate explanation for Dasein. It and its constitutive elements can only be recognized and understood as such. Thus, free will can never be adequately explained, nor can consciousness. Such philosophical inquiries as the hard problem of consciousness or the existence and precise metaphysical qualities of free will are in this way fundamentally misguided from the very start. Volition is discerned. Consciousness is discerned. And that's it. Yes, they exist as such, and no, they cannot be any further explained. Any further attempt to explain these things will always necessarily be entirely bound up within the ontological framework that such fundamental aspects of Dasein always Already constitute. Any metaphysical grounding or causal justification for the manifest reality of these phenomena can only ever be entirely speculative, speculative in a way that is almost certainly going to be ontologically backwards. The Buddha compared people asking him for answers and explanations for such metaphysical topics to a man who is shot with a poisoned arrow, who will not allow the arrow to be removed until he knows the name and the clan of the person who shot him, the type of wood that the bow was made out of, the kind of feather the arrow was fletched with, and so on. The desire for some more hypothetically substantial explanations only emerges out of the gratuitous assumption of a being not subject to the laws of the appearance, a being that can somehow acquire more information about reality than reality itself already supplies. This yearning to get out of our own skin is precisely the assumption of this self-world, a very dangerous assumption to make. The self's attempts to ground itself in the world and to have itself are doomed from the very start at the most fundamental ontological level. The ground of nothingness perpetually surges up into the perceived fullness of the bright sky of being, only ever to close its fingers around empty air. But then, in its falling back down, nothingness discovers of itself that it actually is not ground, for in its falling, it falls down right back into being once again founding itself through being as its own nothingness. We are dealing here with a being which annihilates itself in its being and which seeks in vain to dissolve into itself as a self. Neither the solid imminence of being nor the energetic transcendence of nothingness can escape this groundless interdependence and mutual insufficiency, and, as such, neither the world nor the mind's concerned contextualization of that world can ever hope to lay claim to the hypothetical independence and sufficiency of the true self. The only reason we fear the earthquakes of skepticism and nihilism undermining the ideological scaffolding we build our lives upon is because we're still attempting to live up there doing somersaults in the sky rather than down on the real ground. That true place of rest and coolness is always right here It just takes honesty and effort to uncover the ontological mistake that is the self in all its ridiculous questions and unsatisfiable yearnings must be polished and smoothed out and effaced and understood and endured until it finally fades away and disappears there is frankly little else that needs to be said on the topic of the self. That deeply perturbing reality that our very sense of self is not something that we can ever truly lay our hands on to claim or to own would be motivation and contemplative direction enough for the person who takes such a thing with adequate seriousness and existential integrity most confusions regarding the apparent inscrutability of the Buddhist teaching of anatta just stem from any number of egregious, culturally conditioned metaphysical assumptions combined with generalized philosophical, specifically phenomenological illiteracy, bad faith, a pig-headed commitment to sensuality, or most commonly, some combination of all four. The basic introduction I have laid out here covers most of what is practically important or necessary to understand regarding the self. And beyond that, the phenomenologists already did all the heavy lifting for us, between themselves writing hundreds of dense pages on this topic, all dripping with meaning and discernment. Their analyses were comprehensive and thorough with only the most crucial exception of not recognizing the equivalence that the self-world maintains with the assumption of sensuality and thus the genesis of dukkha by transmitting his teachings to us via oral tradition, the Puta could not provide for us quite the philosophical comprehensiveness or detail that the philosophers did, but that was never his intent in the first place. Practically speaking, the self-world only needs to be understood to the extent that such understanding facilitates its abandonment. Which is precisely the facet upon which the Buddha homed in on and expounded with incredible levels of discernment, as well as almost oppressive oratory force and repetition. If I had the inclination, I might take a decade or so to quibble over all the little conceptual differences the philosophers maintain with each other and with the Buddha on the topic, but They essentially sing in harmony. If you need the words of some very intelligent Germans or Frenchmen to lend ear to the ancient Indian voices in the chorus, I believe I have made the case sufficiently. Even with all their words in mind, putting an end to nihilism and eventually to dukkha in its entirety is something each of us must do on our own by repeatedly undermining the sensual self-assumption, the assumption that ignores the suffering in gratification and the insecurity inherent in belief. Beyond pointing in the right direction, there is nothing that I or anyone else can do to resolve the problem that is your life. After a certain point, reading books like this Getting instructions from a guru and even just frequently socializing and being around other people will actually become deleterious. Beyond being a distraction, living in the constant company of others will repeatedly invoke old social habits and assumptions that reinforce sensuality and the self world distinction. Upon eradicating the delusion permanently, there is no further necessity for isolation or, for that matter, any necessity for anything at all. But prior to that point, living entangled in both the pressure and the gratification of the look will create constant roadblocks to the process of self-effacement. For most, our social circle and that which defines it, the gratification and identification we derive from it, serve as the most essential aspect of our self-world's gravitational dynamics. Company is, in the end, simply another shroud for us to conceal from ourselves the groundless thrownness and meaningless meaningfulness that constitute our lives. As such, making truly effective use of the information in this and other books is, ultimately, something you must do alone. The self-world is a prison, but there is freedom to be found in a secluded dwelling, a wilderness, the shade of a tree, a mountain. A glen, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a forest grove, the open air, a heap of straw. If you dare, go and find it. Mendicants. It's totally impossible that a mendicant who enjoys company and groups, who loves them and likes to enjoy them, should take pleasure in being alone in seclusion. Without taking pleasure in being alone in seclusion, it's impossible to learn the patterns of the mind. Without learning the patterns of the mind, it's impossible to fulfill right view. Without fulfilling right view, it's impossible to fulfill right composure. Without fulfilling right composure, it's impossible to give up the fetters. Without giving up the fetters, It's impossible to realize extinguishment. There's no way that one delighting in company can touch even momentary release, heeding the solar kinsman's words, wander alone like a rhinoceros, transcending the contortion of views, the sure way attained, the path gained, realizing. Unled by others, I have knowledge arisen. Wander alone, like a rhinoceros. With no greed, no deceit, no thirst, no hypocrisy. Delusion and blemishes, plown away. With no inclinations, for all the world, every world. Wander alone, like a rhinoceros.